Four, what causes bad thoughts? Truth in science can be defined as the working hypothesis best suited to open the way to the next better one. Conrad Lawrence, 1903-1989 While no one knows precisely why we have bad thoughts, several theories have been proposed. Although for me, none eclipses the elegance of Poe's Imp of the Perverse. These theories are not mutually exclusive, but rather have large areas of overlap. No one theory provides a complete explanation of bad thoughts. Because, as far as we can tell, bad thoughts have appeared in all cultures and at all times in history. It seems a safe guess that these thoughts are hardwired into our genetic makeup. This brings us to the evolutionary explanation of why we all have bad thoughts from time to time. What causes universal bad thoughts? Evolutionary theories. From the evolutionary viewpoint, the tendency to have sexual and violent thoughts and urges, as well as to engage in these behaviors at appropriate times, has been bred into humans over thousands of centuries, shaping our bodies and minds help us survive and reproduce. As an example, evolutionary theory predicts that the genes of our ancestors who rarely thought about sexual intercourse would gradually have been outnumbered by the genes of those who thought about sex quite a bit, and who, in theory would predict, produce more offspring as a result. Evolutionary theory has proposed a similar explanation to why human males tend to have more aggressive thoughts and act more aggressively than females. Our male ancestors, who thought and behaved most aggressively, would have tended to become the leaders of their groups and as a result, would have impregnated the most females, thus passing on their genes in larger numbers than did the more docile males. Similar controversial evolutionary explanations have been put forth to explain rape and infanticide, which both have important influences on selecting which male's genes win the evolutionary lottery by being passed down through the generations. In the case of forcible sexual attacks, evolutionary theory predicts that our male ancestors who raped by impregnating some of their victims might have passed along genes to their offspring, resulting in a predisposition to rape. In the case of infanticide, studies in the United States and Canada have indeed confirmed the chilling fact that step-parents, who have no genetic investment in the children that they must provide for, are far more likely to kill their stepchildren than our biological parents, which perhaps explains the multitude of wicked step-parents in the ancient fairy tales that we still tell our children. The evolutionary explanation for this apparently senseless killing is that our male ancestors allocated their precious food and other resources only to their own biological children, rather than providing for the survival of the offspring of their male competitors, and hence their genes. Similar phenomenon have been observed in other primate species. Indeed, at least one author has heard in Susan Smith's Drowning of Her Children echoes these ancient evolutionary influences. Her case is typical, pregnant at 19 and married in haste, Smith was estranged at 23, unable, despite child support, to meet her debts, and spurned by a well-to-do lover who was unwilling to accept her children. The evolutionary viewpoint has also been applied to the understanding why new mothers might worry about harming their newborn babies. In her paper on violent thoughts in postpartum depression described above, Dr. Katherine Wisner noted that the more these mothers had violent thoughts about terrible things happening to their infants, 
the more they also checked their infants to ensure that they were safe. This finding suggested to Dr. Wisner that perhaps these thoughts were selected by evolution in part because they made new mothers more vigilant to the very real dangers that could befall their children, thereby increasing their children's chances of survival and hence passing along their vigilance genes. Dr. Wisner believes that the evolutionary hypothesis of new mothers' obsessions about harming their infants is tenable. That is, it is possible that in humanity's early evolutionary history, those mothers who are extra vigilant about their newborns, perhaps because of brain chemistry, bias towards obsessional thoughts about possible dangers to their babies and more checking on their safety, increase the chances of their offspring surviving to maturity and passing on their genes to future generations. Although the evolutionary hypothesis is speculative, Dr. Wisner is confident that regardless of how they came to be, these terrible violent and sexual obsessions are related in some way to the brain chemistry of mothering, which appears to have gone astray in some women. The aggressive and sexual impulses that evolutionary theory predicts were bred into us are thought to be controlled by lower parts of our brains, that is, those parts that we share with other mammals. On a more optimistic side, this viewpoint explains that as humans came together into communities, their brains developed structures to keep raw sexual and violent thoughts and urges under control, that is, to inhibit them. The main role of our species' large orbital frontal cortex, the part of the brain that rests above the orbits of our eyes, hence the name orbital, and behind our large and no longer back-sloping forehead, is to determine whether to act on the thoughts and impulses generated in the lower parts of our brains, or, as is the case most of the time, to inhibit acting on them. Evolutionary theory suggests that through this process, we come into contact with the, the violent and sexual instincts that have been passed down to us over a millennium. To wrap up this brief overview of the evolutionary theory of bad thoughts, I would add my own theory that my patients' problems with bad thoughts arise when either, one, they cannot accept that such urges and thoughts are part of being human, or two, they fear that their orbital frontal cortex will not be able to inhibit these thoughts and urges. As an example in the first case, Isaac, the man who was worried he wanted to have sex with animals, was unable to progress until he came to see his thoughts as the random bad thoughts that would pass through everyone's mind from time to time, rather than as proof he was a pervert who did not deserve to live in human society. Thus, he recognized that his bad thoughts per se were not his biggest problem, but rather his overly strict reaction to his thoughts. Kay, who fears stabbing her children, is an example of the second case. She remains stuck and unwilling to undertake treatment because she still believes she will one day act on her urges, until she has faith that, despite her fears, her brain will not let her do this. She will make little progress. Freud and the Imp of the Perverse An apparent paradox arises from the evolutionary viewpoint. As explained above, evolutionary theory says that our orbital frontal cortex grew larger, at least in part, to inhibit sexual and violent behaviors that would be detrimental to the individual's ability to live in society. As a result, it is difficult to explain why opposite evolutionary pressures should have existed for our ancestors to engage in socially inappropriate behavior. Why do we, for example, sometimes think about doing the most inappropriate thing at the most inappropriate time. As with blasphemous thoughts, 
in church. Perhaps the problem cannot be viewed wholly from the evolutionary perspective. Sigmund Freud approached this question in his classic Totem and Taboo by reminding us that, that taboos would be unnecessary if people did not desire to do the things that could be detrimental to society. For example, commandments such as thou shall not kill or thou shall not commit adultery would not be necessary if these things never happened. Freud emphasizes the conflict we are sure to feel when our sexual and violent thoughts and urges, biological remnants of our evolutionary past, which he called the id, clash head-on with newer, tighter restrictions in a carefully regulated society, such as that of his Victorian era. Freud also theorized that through socialization, we internalize the social prohibitions of our culture in what he called the superego. Some readers may see a strong similarity between the functions of the orbital frontal cortex described above and Freud's superego. At the risk of putting words in Freud's mouth, we could say that the imp of the perverse was born from this social versus biological clash. That is, the tension between our inbred sexual and violent impulses and society's structures against our freely engaging in these behaviors. In other writings, Freud showed that humor developed in part as a safe and socially approved way of dissipating this tension. Think about ever-popular sexual and bathroom humor, and innocent, aggressive jokes poking fun at others. Thought Suppression and Bad Thoughts As interesting as evolutionary and Freudian theories are, both are ultimately untestable. They are used mainly as aids to our thinking about how these bad thoughts may have come about. A more recent theory, called Thought Suppression, proposed by Daniel Wegner, has the advantage of being testable by experiment and also suggests a treatment approach to reduce bad thoughts. In the original preface to his superb book, White Bears and Unwanted Thoughts, Dr. Wegner explains how he chose his title. You would think this book was about white bears, given the title and all, and in a way it is. Although the topic is really unwanted thoughts and how people try to control them, white bears come into the picture because of a story about young Tolstoy. It seems he was once challenged by his older brother to stand in the corner until he could stop thinking of a white bear. Of course, he stood there confused for some time, and the thought was made. We do not seem to have as much control over our minds especially when it comes to suppressing thoughts that are unwanted. Oversimplified, Wagner's theory states that anytime we force ourselves not to think a particular thought, the thought is paradoxically given more energy. Further, not only are we unable to suppress the thought, but our attempts backfire by producing a rebound effect in which the thought occurs more frequently after we finally stop to suppress it. That is, to give to give up actively trying to force ourselves to not think a particular thought. As Freud pointed out, society strongly discourages sexual and violent thoughts that could be socially disruptive. Wegner would argue that, because of social societal taboos taught in the home and church, we learn to vigilantly monitor our thoughts, and whenever we detect an inappropriate thought, we try instantly to suppress it. But as Wagner points out, by doing so, we are our own worst enemy. In reality, we are beginning an endless cycle of failed thought suppression.
a rebounding of more intense thoughts, and then another unsuccessful attempt at thought suppression. Wagner's theory has given us a tool to use in treating our patients with bad thoughts. The turning point to recovery for some patients can be telling them that it is perfectly normal to have bad thoughts from time to time, and that trying to suppress these thoughts is what can turn them into problems. By stopping thought suppression, as did the priest described in an earlier chapter, and letting the thoughts pass normally through the mind, the thoughts are less bothersome and less noticed. On the other hand, the thought suppression certainly plays a role in the kind of normal bad thoughts I've been describing. I do not agree that it is decisive in the development of clinical obsessions. For even though nearly everyone engages in some thought suppression for their unpleasant thoughts, only a minority are tormented or paralyzed by their obsessions. So what causes normal bad thoughts to progress from merely annoying to painful and debilitating? Why do bad thoughts get out of control? Research suggests that a psychiatric disorder such as depression, OCD, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, Tourette's syndrome, or post-traumatic stress disorder is almost always present in those suffering from clinically severe bad thoughts. Depression. As I described earlier, mothers suffering from depression, whether immediately following the birth of a child or later on, are at higher risk of having thoughts about their children than are mothers who are not depressed. For example, Dr. Jennings and Associates in Pittsburgh interviewed 100 clinically depressed mothers with a child under the age of three and found that 41% admitted to having violent thoughts about harming their child, compared to only 7% of 46 undepressed mothers. Being depressed forces us to look at ourselves and our world through dark-colored glasses, and it predisposes us to having more bad thoughts about death and danger. Along the same lines, a group of researchers in England recently reported in four women treated for their pathological fear of cot death, usually referred to as Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, in the United States. All these women were depressed and all excessively checking their baby's breathing during the night. Characteristics of clinical depression are listed below in Table 6. As you can see from this final characteristic, when depressed, we often think the worst of ourselves. This often leads us to experience normal bad thoughts as evidence that we are worthless, sinful, bad people who are deserving punishment. Table 6. Characteristics of Clinical Depression Feeling sad, empty, or tearful most of the time. Loss of interest or pleasure in most activities that used to be enjoyable. Decreased appetite or weight loss or increased appetite and weight gain. Trouble sleeping or trouble sleep trouble sleeping or sleeping too much. Feeling slowed down most of the time or feeling very restless most of the time. Feeling very tired and without energy most of the time. Trouble thinking, concentrating, or making decisions most of the time. Thinking about death or suicide a lot. Decrease interest in sex. Feeling worthless or guilty about past mistakes. It is especially important to make a clear distinction between bad thoughts that are the subject of this book and the suicidal thoughts that are common in depression. If you have frequent and strong thoughts like, 
fantasizing about how you would kill yourself, images of yourself lying in a coffin, impulses to cut yourself, strong impulses to shoot yourself with a gun, strong impulses to take an overdose of pills, strong impulses to hang yourself, strong impulses to jump out of a window, strong impulses to crash your automobile, images or fantasies about doing any of these things. Then you should take these thoughts or impulses seriously and talk to mental health professionals about them as soon as possible. These thoughts can be dangerous and are different from the thoughts of harmless sexual, aggressive, and religious bad thoughts that are the subject of this book. Tourette Syndrome Tourette Syndrome is a neuropsychiatric disorder that illustrates the tension between our sexual and aggressive impulses and society's taboos. In no other disorder is the imp of the perverse as clear at work. For here, besides the muscle tics and twitches, and the odd sound that are the cardinal sign of this disorder, sufferers sometimes shout the rudest obscenities in public, may engage in masturbatory motions, and frequently complain of sexual and violent thoughts and urges. Here is one of the earliest recorded accounts of Tourette syndrome. In the mid-15th century, a worried father and his son traveled from Central Europe to Rome to seek the advice of an exorcist. Until recently, the father explained, his son had enjoyed a well-earned reputation as a talented preacher of the gospel. To the man's horror, however, his son had recently developed a strange and uncontrollable urges to grimace and curse whenever he found himself in church. The son, too, was justly frightened, living as he did at a time when presumed witches were similarly executed. When asked to explain his behavior, the young man said he felt as if a demon had taken control of his will. I cannot help myself at all, he said, for so he uses all my limbs and my organs, causing me to speak and cry out. I hear the words as if they were spoken by myself, but I'm altogether unable to restrain them. Fearing satanic possession, the father had decided that the only hope was to drive out the infecting demon. Anything that a Toretter is told not to do can instantly become the aim of an insistent urge. Patients have told me that they have felt so compelled to shove knives into electric outlets, to shift their cars into reverse while driving at high speed, and to pluck out their eyeball, to pull fire alarms, and to touch other people on the nose, and to shout racial slurs or blasphemies in church. And unlike sufferers of OCD, every one of these patients has acted on these urges many times. Neurologist Oliver Sacks has given us several case studies of Tourette's that beautifully illustrate the psychological complexity of this disorder. Recently, he wrote of a visit with a Canadian surgeon with Tourette's, showing the imp of the perverse at play in this amazing man. In these two different scenarios, whatever behavior was most prohibited at the particular moment was instantly seized upon by the imp. The next patient was a heavy woman with a melanoma on her buttock, which needed to be excised at some depth. Bennett scrubbed up and donned sterile gloves. Something about the sterile field, the prohibition, seemed to stir his Tourette's. He made a sudden darting motion, or incipient motions, of his sterile gloved right towards the ungloved, dirty part of his left arm. The patient eyed this without expression. Bennett preparing for the operating room was a startling sight. You should scrub next to him, his young assistant said. It's quite an experience. It was indeed, for what I saw in the outpatient clinic was magnified here. Constant sudden dartings and reaching with the hands, almost but never quite touching the unscrubbed and sterile shoulder. His assistant, the mirror, sudden lungings and touchings of his colleagues with his feet, and a barrage of vocalizations, hooty-hoo, hooty-hoo, suggestive of a huge owl. 
Like the surgeon described by Dr. Sachs, many of the patients with Tourette's syndrome have felt tempted to do the most inappropriate thing at the most inappropriate time. For a surgeon, this might be making sterilized hands dirty. But for my patient, Brad, a traveling salesman in his early 40s, who had spent most of his time driving, his urges focused on ruining his automobile. Although the drug Heldol had controlled most of his tics, twitches, and grunts, when Brad first came to see me, he described being left with occasional urges to do dangerous things such as throw his car into reverse at 55 miles an hour on the, on the highway. As he told me this, I recall having wondering what would happen if I did such a thing. The imp of the perverse is never far. Brad explained to me that when the urge struck, he had enough control to lay it until he had safely pulled into a breakdown lane, slowed down, and made sure no cars were behind him. Then wham, he jammed the automatic gear shift forward from D to R and felt the gears grind as the gearbox locked up and was ruined. The car finally jolted to a stop. Oh yes, Brad added as he told me of a key precaution that he takes as a result of his urge. I only drive rental cars. OCD and Tourette's syndrome are believed to be genetically linked and also to share neurological pathways. Interestingly, several recent studies have found that sufferers of OCD are far less likely to suffer from violent or sexual obsessions unless they also suffer from the tics and twitches of Tourette's syndrome. For example, Dr. Lechman and his associates at Yale University found that the patients with tic-related OCD reported more aggressive, religious, and sexual obsessions than patients with OCD, but no tics. Similarly, Dr. Zohar and his associates at Hebrew University in Israel studied adolescents suffering from OCD and found that those with tics were more prone to aggressive and sexual images and obsessions than those without tics, and that these differences could not be explained by the gender of the child. Table 7 lists the characteristics of Tourette's syndrome. Table 7 Characteristics of Tourette's Syndrome 4H18 had several muscle tics and at least one vocal tic, sound or noise. The tics happened many times a day for more than a year, and the child was never without all tics more than three months in a row. Example of muscle tics Face Winking, rolling eyes, curling in eyelids, etc, etc. Head or neck, tossing head, nodding head, jerking head, dropping head, etc. Arms Jerking arms, clenching fists, stretching fingers, etc. Body, thrusting pelvis, jerking abdomen, twitching chest, etc. Legs, shaking foot and toes, flexing hips, kicking, curling toes, etc. Example of vocal tics, throat clearing, barking, sniffing, snorting, grunting, cursing, repeating words of others, etc. Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder Many individuals who suffer from bad thoughts would also be diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, or OCPD. The criteria for this disorder are listed on page 41. As you can see by the first characteristic, these people tend to be inflexible and perfectionistic about moral or religious matters. For them, it is unforgivable to experience even a single bad thought, even if they acknowledge that other people have had them as well. Especially if this person's view of religion includes a vengeful, punitive God, he or she will have little tolerance for any normal bad thoughts that pass through his or her mind, which might barely be noticed by another person. In earlier times, individuals with OCPD were considered to have sensitive coincidences, which 
Come to think of it, probably better describes their problem and vulnerability than today's modern acronym. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder OCD sufferers either have intrusive thoughts that they can't get out of their mind or perform rituals over and over again, or both. The diagnostic criteria for OCD are listed on page 36. My colleagues, Dr. Carrie Savage and Dr. Rauch, and our research team at the Massachusetts General Hospital slash Harvard Medical School, found recently that sufferers of OCD are often unable to pay adequate attention to events they are not actively focusing upon. As a result, these events are not stored in their memories, as happens automatically for most of us. As an example, although I cannot actually picture locking my door this morning, some automatic part of my brain was functioning then and registering that I did this. This is called implicit learning. Because I wasn't actively or explicitly focusing on locking the door at the time, yet I have a gut feeling of certainty that I did, even though I can't actually picture doing it. This probably is the reason that patients with OCD stare at a light switch for many minutes, yet still feel like it doesn't register in their mind that the switch is off. By the same token, OCD sufferers cannot feel certain that they have not performed an inappropriate action they have thought about because they cannot remember having done it. Although I cannot specifically remember not having sexually molested anyone on the street earlier today, my brain was properly monitoring my actions and automatically gathered the information to give me the safe gut feeling that I did nothing wrong. On the other hand, consider my patient who worries that he will unknowingly have sex with passerby on the street. When later he tries to feel certain he has not molested or been molested, he searches his memory for proof, but not finding it. He becomes more afraid, since being over-conscientious and wanting absolute certainty, he draws the erroneous conclusion that because he can't remember not having done it, he must have sexually molested someone. You'll see later that learning how to identify and correct such irrational behaviors is at the, the heart of a new treatment for bad thoughts called cognitive therapy. Much of our research in the last decade has been aimed at understanding what goes on in the brains of OCD sufferers, causing their intrusive thoughts and compulsions. By using new brain scanning technologies, along with careful as assignment with neuropsychological tests of attention and memory, our research team has begun to piece together a comprehensive picture of this mysterious disorder. For the first time in history, we are now able to actually see what happens in the brains of people while they're having bad thoughts. Dr. Savage explains that our studies using brain imaging show that when the patient has obtrusive obsessions, specific parts of their brain becomes more active. These include the orbital frontal cortex, the caudate nucleus, and the anterior cingulum, all of which are closely connected with our limbic system, the part of the brain involved with strong feelings. This explains why people usually obsess about things that involve in danger of harm or of humiliation. To demonstrate, Mr. Savage gives the example of a woman afraid of knives. If despite her effort to avoid them, she sees a knife, this activates her brain's limbic system, and she becomes aware of feeling scared. Then, if due to OCD, the parts of the brain described above, despite working overtime, are not able to completely suppress the feeling and keep from her awareness, then she will probably suffer from obsessions and worries about the knife and the damage it can do. Recall my patient Kay, the mother who spent hours worrying that she would stab her boy and girl while they lay sleeping. How would a neuropsychologist such as Dr. Savage try to reassure Kay that she will not act on obsessions like stabbing her children? 
He might tell her, although you worry that your brain is not able to inhibit your acting on your thoughts and urges, our brain scans show that, in reality, the proper parts of your brain, such as your orbital frontal cortex, are actually working extra hard and succeeding in inhibiting your urges. In fact, your brain activity is the exact opposite of a person who acts impulsively and dangerously. In the very same areas that your brain is working extra hard, their brains are underactive. In the end, Dr. Savage would try to help Kay see that she is wasting her time worrying and trying to inhibit her thoughts and impulses because the correct parts of her brain are already automatically doing this job for her. How are OCD and Tourette syndrome related in the brain? Dr. Savage recommends that we think of these two disorders as lying upon a continuum, with the particular symptoms we see determined by which brain systems are malfunctioning. He cites Tourette syndrome, in which the brain's motor networks, that is, nerves that are connected to various muscles, are primarily affected. As a result, we see a variety of muscle tics, twitches, and jerks, along with sounds produced by the vocal musculature. In OCD, on the other hand, Dr. Savage believes that prefrontal cognitive networks involved in thinking are probably affected. So we see more mental symptoms, such as obsessive thoughts and worries. But why do sufferers of Tourette's syndrome say the most inappropriate thing at the most inappropriate time? As an example, Lowell Handler, a sufferer of this disorder, writes in his recent book, Twitch and Shout, about an acquaintance of his who had Tourette's syndrome and was a lesbian. She lived with her parents and was most afraid of them discovering her sexual preference. The one word she blurted out time and time again, loudly and often, was gay. Here's the imp of the perverse at his best. But what happens in the brain to produce this? Dr. Savage believes the urges to say or do these things are tightly tied to the limbic or emotional system of the brain because these acts are all dangerous, provocative, and or shocking. That, he explains, is why it is no accident that the words shouted out tend to be those the sufferer might feel most ashamed to shout out. All of us have witnessed friends who drink too much alcohol and then act inappropriately, perhaps doing some of the embarrassing or dangerous things that OCD sufferers fear doing. Why is this? What is happening in the brain to cause this? Dr. Savage explains that alcohol and our recreational drugs, such as barbiturates, suppress the activity of our brain's, fr brain's frontal cortex, whose main job is to control and suppress the primitive, aggressive, and sexual impulses from the lower areas of our brain. When we drink or use drugs, our frontal cortex is no longer able to do its job properly, making us much more likely to act on our impulses. Because of this, for anyone who worries about doing something dangerous or embarrassing, such as someone with OCD, getting intoxicated with any substance is usually a bad idea. Several of my patients with OCD have told me about times when they have drank too much, blacked out, and the next morning were tormented trying to remember whether they had done something inappropriate from sexually molesting someone in the house to having urinated in the orange juice. They unanimously agreed that their terrible fear they felt the next morning, worse than any hangover, far outweighed the temporary high they had felt the night before. Earlier, you met Gary, a father obsessed with possibly having sexually molested his young daughter or her friend. Try as he might to feel certain, he said he simply couldn't remember not having done something wrong, which kept his fear going. What could be happening in his brain to keep him caught in this awful negative loop?
Dr. Savage explains that we see the symptoms of OCD only when both, one, emotional systems of the limbic system, and two, cognitive systems of the prefrontal cortex are malfunctioning. When these two problems coexist, OCD sufferers such as Gary will place tremendous emotional importance on their thoughts and worry about them excessively. To make matters worse, these two problems are related to yet other problems. Gary's brain has in processing a particular kind of memory called episodic memory. Episodic memory is your ability to recreate past events in your head. When you add all these problems together, you can see why Gary feels anxious and worried that he has done something wrong in the past, but he can't remember it. All in all. A terribly upsetting feeling. Dr. Savage gives an analogy. Although I can't remember whether I locked the door to my house this morning, this worry doesn't have a lot of importance to me because it doesn't activate my limbic system in the same way it would for someone with OCD because they are excessively concerned with safety and worries about making a mistake and being blamed for it. Some of my patients describe vivid images they have as a part of their bad thoughts. They tell me that when they are worried about something happening, at times they can actually see it happen. For example, if they fear hitting someone while driving, they might look in the rearview mirror and see a body lying behind them in the road. One patient of mine described vivid images of animals run over on the road. Another saw body parts strewn as if on a battlefield. Such strong images make thoughts even more upsetting than less visual obsessions. What can be happening to these people's brains to produce these strange experiences? Dr. Savage notes that although patients with OCD are clearly not schizophrenic, what some experience is like a hallucination. My colleague at Harvard, Stephen Coslin, has performed many studies of visual imagery, proving that when I form an image in my mind of some event, I'm activating exactly the same areas of my brain that I would have had if I had actually seen the event. As a result, Dr. Savage speculates that many OCD sufferers, like Gary, may be reestablishing their feared images frequently, and by doing so, it might eventually become hard for them to differentiate what they're actually imagining from what they're actually seeing. By the same token, an OCD sufferer such as Gary, who checks his memory over and over again, may actually harm his memory of the things he did and didn't do, as it becomes more difficult for him to differentiate one episode from another. As an interested onlooker of the neuroscience scene, I am sometimes struck by the similarities between the results of our imaging studies and some Freud's early ideas about the superegos trying to inhibit primitive impulses from rising up from the ancient id. To the extent that the neuroscience orbital frontal cortex does a lot of the same things that Freud hypothesized the superego would do, Dr. Savage agrees that neuroscience limbic system is suspiciously similar to Freud's id. In fact, Freud hypothesized that the superego was overreactive in OCD. I bet he'd love to see brain scan images showing the orbital frontal cortex lit bright red in overactivity in OCD. Perhaps the old saying is true, and there really is nothing new under the sun. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is characterized by recurrent memories, flashbacks, and nightmares of some traumatic event. The key difference from OCD is that sufferers of PTSD suffer from memories of actual traumatic events that have happened to them. In OCD, the sufferer thinks about imagined catastrophes that might occur. Table 8 lists the characteristics of this disorder. 
Table 8. Characteristics of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Person was exposed to a traumatic event, either witnessed or experienced an event that is involved or threatened injury or death, felt intense fear, helplessness, or horror at the time. Person still re-experiences the event, still has frequent and intrusive memories of the event, images, thoughts, feelings, still has frequent distressing dreams of the event, feels as if traumatic event is happening again and again, feels strong distress and fear when confronted with these things that remind her of the event. Person still avoids things associated with the trauma, avoids thoughts, feelings, or conversations about trauma, avoids activities, places, or people that remind her of the trauma, not able to remember important parts of the trauma. Person still feels numb, less interested in activities that used to be enjoyable, feels detached or disconnecting from other people. Person often feels anxious or afraid, trouble falling or staying asleep, often irritable or angry, trouble concentrating, feeling always on guard, jumpy in response to loud or sudden noises. It is important to distinguish intrusive bad thoughts about violence, sex, or blasphemy from images or memories of past traumatic experiences. This is especially important when the trauma has been severe and the resulting psychological problems are severe and require professional help. In her classic book, Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence, From Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, Dr. Judith Herman discusses with her patients who suffer from what she calls complex PTSD, including those who have had experienced a history of subjugation to totalitarian control over a prolonged period, months to years. Examples include hostages, prisoners of war, concentration camp survivors, and survivors of religious cults. Examples often include those subjected to totalitarian systems in sexual and domestic life, including survivors of domestic battering, childhood physical or sexual abuse, and organized sexual exploitation. Individuals exposed to such traumatic situations often experience the following symptoms, which are different from the harmless, violent, sexual, and blasphemous thoughts that are the subject of this book. Frequent thoughts of suicide, frequent thoughts of harming themselves, reliving past experiences over and over again. Strong fear of feeling or expressing any angry feelings. Extremely inhibited anger. Images of violence toward the abuser. Strong fear or disgust with sex. Upsetting images about sex. Dr. Herman explained the characteristic of the traumatic memory this way. The traumatic memory becomes encoded in an abnormal form of memory, which speaks spontaneously into consciousness both as flashbacks during walking states and as traumatic nightmares during sleep. Small, seemingly insignificant reminders can also evoke these memories, which will often return with all the vividness and emotional force of the original event. Thus, even normally safe environments may come to feel dangerous, for the survivor can never be assured that she will not encounter some remainder of the trauma. There are effective treatments for PTSD and for complex PTSD many of which are described in Dr. Herman's outstanding book. If you think you may be suffering from this disorder, I suggest you first read as much as you can about it, then talk to a mental health professional you feel you can trust. Case example. Overlap of bad thoughts and PTSD. The intricate and sometimes confusing relationship between bad thoughts and PTSD was brought home to me by Janie when she first came to see me. Janie, a young professional woman, 
struck me at first as exceedingly shy. Although she was polite and at times looked towards me, she never seemed to look at me. Not until our second visit did I feel comfortable enough with Janie to ask her why she never seemed to make eye contact with me. By that time, she had admitted to me, reluctantly, that she was tormented by violent and sexual thoughts toward coworkers, and in many other situations too, such as in crowded buses or trains. Knowing that Janie, like most of other patients, were, was exquisitely sensitive about her bad thoughts, I asked her carefully, do you not make eye contact with me because doing this might trigger you to have a bad thought about me? Janie, now looking down at the floor, nodded. That's part of it, she added after a few beats. When she didn't expand on this after a few seconds of silence, I asked what other reasons she might have. Again, Janie paused. Still looking at the linoleum floor at my office, she added, If you look in my eyes, you'll see in them the awful things I've done. Janie explained that she was also occasionally troubled by thoughts, which she worried might be true memories of having been sexually abused when she was a little girl. Here is my first clue of a complicated relationship for Janie between PTSD and obsessive bad thoughts. This relationship became clear to me when I helped Janie write out exposure script for her bad thoughts about molesting children. When Janie recorded this script, with my assistance in her own voice, on a loop tape, and listened to it the next night, she paged me to tell me that something odd had happened. After listening for a while to the loop tape, in which she was acting on her worst fears of molesting a young child in the shower, she told me that the anxiety had begun to mount, and then she went numb, feeling dissociated from her surroundings. And then she began experiencing a flashback memory of herself as the young child being molested in the shower. During this experience, which is common in flashbacks of PTSD, Janie told me that she had felt physical memories of the molestation, just as if it were happening right then. This was another warning signal to me, and I told Janie that this suggested that we might also have to proceed slowly with exposure therapy for these PTSD memories as well. Like many of my patients, Janie then began to obsess and feel guilty about whether she could be absolutely certain that these events had occurred. I told her that since she was having sense memories, we should agree to a working hypothesis for now that these memories were true, so she wouldn't have to obsess over that. At one of our next sessions, the overlap between her OCD and PTSD once again reared its head. As Janie was writing out detailed exposure for the blasphemous and violent thoughts that she suffered when she entered a church, she spoke of the intense anger she felt toward the church, and in general, the family priests in particular, for not having encouraged me to talk about this abuse, thus indirectly enabling it to continue. Janie's mind had apparently transformed her childhood anger towards the church, which she had never been able to express directly into violent thoughts towards others who had not directly harmed her. Sigmund Freud had termed such a phenomena displacement. When in Janie's case, the gold standard treatment of exposure therapy did not work correctly, that is, habituation did not occur, I sought to diagnose the real problem, which led to an awareness of PTSD symptoms and possibly abuse history. The weeks that followed Janie's first flashbacks were not peaceful. She paged me often, telling me that she felt terribly guilty and at times suicidal for thinking that such terrible things had happened. This is a common experience in severe PTSD and is an important reason 
why a trained mental health care professional should treat this with a combination of problems. Janie's OCD symptoms rapidly decreased, and she is now dealing with her flashback memories of abuse and worries about whether the events actually occurred. Through recounting these memories with careful description of physical memories, such as feeling held down, nausea, and choking, she is gradually coming to terms with these other problems. It is hard work that will take time, but Janie is committed to seeing it through. For patients whose bad thoughts do not respond to the standard behavioral or medication treatments, I now routinely ask them about past traumatic experiences. In a number of cases, they have then recalled physical, emotional, or sexual abuse that has not been adequately dealt with. Although we are still researching this area and our results are not conclusive, we are optimistic that after treatment for their PTSD, these individuals will be able to successfully tackle their bad thoughts. Highly sensitive people. Until recently, a piece seemed to me to be missing from these scientific explanations. Why do my patients worry so much about their thoughts? None of these theories described above seem to answer this fundamental question. In conducting support groups for people with bad thoughts, I tried to look for similarities between participants, identifying characteristics that might help me better understand this problem. Finally, after about a year, a consistent pattern began to take shape. With only one or two exceptions, all of the participants said that, as children, they had been highly sensitive, especially when in social situations, but also to loud sounds and strong emotions. They were generally shy when they were young, were sensitive to being picked on by other children, and had a hard time expressing anger towards others. These observations led me to the medical school library to research the literature on sensitive people. My first search turned up a recent best-selling book for the general public titled The Highly Sensitive Person by Dr. Elaine Aron. That humans differ greatly in how reactive their nervous systems are to the same stimulation from the environment is well documented. Dr. Aron focuses on these individuals. Perhaps 15 to 20% of all people who are very sensitive to stimulation those she calls highly sensitive people, or as she refers to them, HSP. Dr. Ahn has interviewed several hundred HSP to learn more about them and how this sensitivity of their nervous system affects them positively and negatively. Two results of her surveys caught my eye. One, HSP are highly conscientious. And two, they're often thinking about their own thinking. This is beginning to sound more and more like the patients in my group. As I looked into this phenomenon further, I found references to it by the great Russian physiologist Ivan Pavlov, who used the terms weak nervous system and neuroticism, and also by Freud's Swiss disciple Carl Jung, who used the term introversion and described people who are highly sensitive to their environment as being lost in the world of thoughts. My colleague at Harvard, Dr. Jerome Coggin, has spent the majority of his career carefully studying the development of this trait in children as young as four months old. As I reread Galen's prophecy, Kagan's authoritative book on this subject, I came upon the quote that again seemed to perfectly describe my patients with bad thoughts. Anxiety and guilt over violations of moral standards are mediated by some of the same limbic circuits that mediate high reactivity and inhibition. This is a behavioral description 
of what we usually refer to as shyness and discomfort around new situations, especially strangers. Thus, inhibited children might be more susceptible to these moral emotions and biologically prepared to feel more intense guilt or anxiety over asocial behavior. If such children grow up in a home environment that insists on obedience, they should show signs of unusually strict standards on the behaviors that their families regard as inappropriate. This hypothesis of a connection between the suffering from bad thoughts and having been an inhibited or highly sensitive child has presented itself to me only recently and is yet to be scientifically tested. Yet, so far as least, the connection seemed to me to fit, and more importantly, to make sense to many of my patients. To many of them, this discussion has enabled them to talk about how afraid they have been about feeling, let alone expressing strong emotions such as fear, even in the earliest childhood, how conscientious they have been, and how this has led to strict thought suppression from an early age, how their obsessions can sometimes be triggered by imagined social slights that may seem insignificant to others, and perhaps more importantly, why they pay so much attention to and place so much importance on their thoughts. By now you have some understanding of what causes bad thoughts. From evolutionary forces that shaped our ancestors' sexual and aggressive tendencies, to society's taboos against expression of these tendencies, to the problems caused by the unusual practice of simply trying to suppress our bad thoughts. And finally, to the coexisting psychiatric diagnoses that can lead to clinically severe bad thoughts that require treatment. Also, you should be able to recognize other thoughts and impulses that can be confused with harmless bad thoughts, but which should be taken seriously. Now it is time to consider the treatments that have been proven effective for violent, sexual, and blasphemous bad thoughts.